0: This is Office Detox. Personal stories reflected in this podcast are true, but details have been changed to protect the companies and people involved. So we had an awesome opportunity ahead of us. We had a chance together to build a mobile app that would change the world through work. On one side, we had Edward who was a brilliant mobile coder and designer. On the other side, we had myself, who was good at pulling together resources and people to build the ultimate app for our trainees. Edward and I had over 10 years of experience working together side by side in this way. Whether I was in a full-time job or consulting, Edward would always come in and make the mobile apps and tools to make ideas happen. He grew up on the area called Jaden Finch in the Greater Toronto area, which is considered a tough neighborhood. He had reddish-brown hair, hair and green eyes. He and I went to school together, initially, but he had dropped out to self-teach himself how to code. Now he was both a designer and a coder, which was a hot combination. And at that point, he was so good that no one bothered to see whether or not he had a degree. Now, in a way that most people dream or do hobby projects, my bosses were asking him and I to collaborate on an app that would have a global reach, helping children with their reading around the world, and our trainees maintain their businesses. We had a team of additional coders, but we were the ones designing the project. Although I did not see him all the time, we did go out to lunch every few months, and if he didn't come to a meeting or for whatever reason, It would be me that would be running around checking up on him to make sure that he was okay as a bachelor and as me being one of the key people that he dealt with every day. I just wanted to make sure that he was safe. So I was pretty excited to make my own mobile app and to have that particular thing on my resume, but it was Edward. It was his lifelong dream come true and kind of his grand opus as a coder. Office Detox is a podcast about business and part of the darker side of it. Most people in business are decent people just trying to do their thing, but a small minority are toxifying the workplace and the rest of us have to struggle through it. What if we could identify them, detox the office, and the rest of us could just do our jobs and live our lives? My name is Stefania Sigurdsson-Forbes, and I'm your host of Office Detox. Today, we're going to take a look at Amherst, Massachusetts, 35-year-old lab employee, Sonia Farrick, and how she brought the Massachusetts criminal justice system to their knees through her addiction and cover-up. Most of the research from this story came from the documentary How to Fix a Drug Scandal, which can be found on Netflix, and it was done by Aaron Lee Carr. And you'll also see some additional articles in the show notes. Sonia Farrick worked as a drug in a drug lab in Amherst doing chemical analysis of suspected narcotics. The action of her and another woman, Annie Dukum, who acted independently resulted in tens of thousands of drug counts being dismissed. The single largest mass dismissal of criminal cases in US history. Essentially, for a drug conviction to take place, there needs to be proof of a crime occurring. So is it actually cocaine? Or is it something that looks like it? The way that is determined is for a chemist, like Farrick, to go through to see chemically if it's truly drugs or not. The way that it is done is for a chemist to test it against a sample to see if it's real. So drugs labs need to have those samples in place. And there's more on this later. Farrick's main duties on the job were to perform chemical analysis on suspected narcotics, as mentioned, maintain instrumentation and do quality control as well as testify in court. Sonia Farrick was born in 1978 to Stanley and Linda Farrick and raised in Portsmouth, Rhode Island with her sister, Amy. She was the first female in Rhode Island to be on a high school football team she played as starting guard on Portsmouth High School's freshman team and was apparently good, according to her teammates. She attended the Worcester Polytechnic Institute, and she got a bachelor's of science degree in biochemistry in 2000 with awards and distinction. So she seemed to be someone who had a bit of a unique path, but is smart and an achiever. I remember people like this in school who were down to earth people and didn't really need makeup and sort of had their minds focused on some higher functions of science and math rather than focus on fashion and makeup like some of the other people like me in experience people like this were kind of outdoorsy and sporty i'm not sure if this was true of ferrick but this is kind of how i picture her in her second last year she won the gray award um, which recognized her for dedication, commitment, and unselfishness in the enrichment of student life. In her last year, she won the American Institute of Chemists Award, which sounds pretty amazing. ferrick attended Temple University in Philadelphia for graduate school. Like many of us in that phase of life, she experimented with drugs recreationally. After a few jobs right out of school, she worked at the Hinton State Library in Jamaica Plain as a bacteriologist working on HIV tests and then transferred to the Amherst for drug analysis. At that time, she settled down together with Nikki Lee. So they were both in their 20s, and I feel like Farrakh was someone who was upwardly mobile, doing well in her field and bringing that smart energy to her work. But there was something else about Farrakh. She struggled with depression, and it was the kind of depression that people call treatment resistance, or one that does not respond well to medication. When you have a mental illness, in my opinion, it's not your fault. It's a disease that is centered on the brain. It is because of biology, trauma, or some other reason. And I see this as someone who struggles with mental illness myself but once you have it, instead of acting it out, it is your responsibility to treat it. So the same goes with people with addiction as well. Addiction is uh, referred to as substance abuse disorder, but just because it is a disease does not mean the person has no responsibility. Once they have it, it is their job to treat it and we can all have sympathy for that process at the same time. So, it must have been hard to have treatment-resistant depression for Frank. But, at the same time, should Frank have stayed in a job where she could affect the lives of tens of thousands of people? Now, if we think of ourselves in the as people that suffer from mental health issues, we want to at least minimize the negative impact that we can have on the world. And I think this may be the problem that Farag didn't face. More on this later. Even after settling down with her partner, she continued to have suicidal thoughts. Instead of completing suicide, she started taking drugs that she would be testing for work. She began using the drugs just a few months after she transferred to the lab. Her home life was difficult as well. And she had her own partner with her own mental health issues. She spent most of her time surfing the web at home. In the documentary, you see several crack pipes and unsecured drugs at Farrakh's desk. You also see Farrakh sampling from the cupboard, the samples used to compare the drugs found in arrests. She found that the drugs made her feel euphoric. They helped her stop procrastinating and do the things that she needed to do. She started with methamphetamines, It was something that she did daily, first thing in the morning, in early 2005, and over the next four years, several times a day. Other drugs she used included amphetamines, phentermine, ketamine, MDMA, MDEA, cocaine, and LSD. She used from using samples or standards to using police submitted samples in 2011. She then started to take base cocaine or crack and got very addicted. So addicted that she was using it at her station when other employees were in the lab. She also started taking samples from other chemists. So when I say station, it's almost like at her desk. So imagine you're sitting at your desk and you're doing this and other people are around, you know, this is somebody who's deeply, deeply in their addiction. Getting caught. In January Seventeenth, twenty thirteen, another chemist in the lab, Sharon Salem, discovered some discrepancy in the drug samples that Farrak tested, and noticed that two samples were missing. Her and her supervisor then looked at ferric station, and found drug paraphernalia and unlabeled drugs and two and the two evidence bags of missing samples. They retested them and found it was not the controlled samples. They believed that. Farrick had removed the drug and replaced it with counterfeits. She at first pleaded not guilty, but there were therapy diary cards in her car that showed a clear history of drug use. Now, for people that have used these type of diary cards, I did feel very divided that these tools that you use in therapy just because they were found in your car are just evidence, but that's how it goes. So it was actually in those diary cards of hers that she showed that drug use history. She later pled guilty. For her wrongdoing, she served 18 months in prison and was released in 2005. She also got five years of probation and 500 years, sorry, 500 hours of community service. In 2008, after Ferrick's release from prison, the courts dismissed an average of 11,000 convictions and 7,700 different criminal cases as a result of Ferrick's misconduct. The Hampton Superior Court wrote in this ruling, it has been startling to see unveiled the amount of damage done by a single lab analyst, Sonia Farrick, who placed her own selfish wants and needs before her duty as a public servant in this critically important role. According to Carr, Farrick is not on drugs anymore. She is now fighting a civil case. In 2017, Rolando Peñate, filed a 5.7 million lawsuit against 18 defendants, including Farrick. Fer- Panate is just one of thousands of people whose cases were affected by Farrick's actions. Court records showed that Ferrick was smoking crack and dropping acid on the same day that she tested the drugs in Penate's case. Essentially, because it is proven that the drugs were real, these defendants, mostly from minority groups, were wrongly imprisoned. She is representing herself in the case. So let's take a breath, (laughs) because that's the story. And it's a very sad and painful story because there's also some racial inequity going on since most of the people who were affected by this were people of color and new immigrants and that kind of stuff. So um, it's just this very sad situation. Um, And although I think the judge was harsh when he said it was her selfish needs, I do agree somewhat that, you know, Ferrick had this heartbreaking case of treatment-resistant depression, had a painful situation at home, um, and uh, unfortunately she just got so deep into her addiction that maybe she just didn't have enough of self-awareness to get out of it. So we're in such a tough area of morals here that we can see how much one person's addiction can affect the lives of so many others. So what do we do when someone we work with is using drugs and it's affecting work? Well, back to my original story. For some reason, I've always enjoyed that unique bond you can get with someone when you've worked together for a long time. Our Western view of connections and intimacy is all centered around romance and love, but I find in practice The connections that we have can span many other things, including work. Without it sounding too weird, Edward and I were stronger together as a team than we were separate. He didn't like to exercise the day-to-day people skills it takes to get things done, and I don't have any coding skills per se, but have positioned myself in this technical career, although being self-taught, and having him or people like him filling in my gaps of knowledge. There's something much better about working together as a team that is more powerful than any individual. It is also interesting to see that relationships strengthen over time and we could learn to be better together as our trust grew. So we grew together and there was, and there still is a void after he was gone. Have you ever had someone like that in your life, listener? So it was strange that Edward, who was Saturnian and liked to display his intelligence and capabilities to the rest of the coder, was not showing his work. Month after month in our daily scrum meetings, where we all talked about what we were doing today and what we were going to do tomorrow, the other coders were starting and finishing sprints or significant parts of a project, and Edward had nothing to show. I also noticed that Edward wanted to get paid weekly instead of monthly, and he started coming to the office every Friday to pick up his check in person. Once the controller pulled me aside and let me know that he was cashing those checks at one of those immediate check cashing places where you don't actually need to have a bank account and you can get your money immediately. And we started to understand why he needed that money when we started to see what was happening to him physically. He was losing a lot of weight and becoming more gaunt, and his teeth were yellowing more and more. He was acting more and more strangely as he came to the office as well. Unlike many of the other topics covered in the Dirty Dozen, addiction actually falls under the umbrella of health and safety. According to the Canadian Center of Occupational Health and Safety, drug use is something that can be covered by effective policy. So elements of the policy include a definition of substance abuse, a statement of the employee's rights to confidentiality, that education and training will be provided, provision for assisting substance abusers, outline of how substance use and impairment will be addressed in the workplace, when drug and alcohol testing will be done, and what the consequences will be. It is key to have everyone treated in the same way so that there's absolute fairness. It is also good for people to understand the policies beforehand. This includes what to do with contractors, as was happening in my situation. I kept having strong suspicions, but it took about six months for me to do a full investigation into the mobile app development. Since I'm not a coder, I could not see his work the way that another could so i had to go through a code review process with a very competent coder on the team in six months time he found edward had done less than three weeks of work i was devastated and i had none of these policies to fall back on and my management was full of narcissists and predators so they weren't really prepared to support me during this time so went to confront Edward about what happened after clearing it with the bosses. I gave him an open door to tell me whether or not he had an addiction, but he just responded in anger and bitterness, bringing up all the things that he'd done for me over the years and saying how much I was hurting him by asking him to leave. At the same time, I knew enough about one of his other clients to be aware that he was safe financially, at least for a while, and I felt better about that. This client had simpler work and had very low expectations. And I think that's where Edward was at that point. It was painful to see my colleague and friend struggle with addiction. While there was no formal investigation, it was clear to everyone who saw him what was going on. Having trust after something like this was tough. Since you get used to working with someone so closely, you're pretty much finishing each other's sentences And then you go through these hundreds, if not thousands of interactions. You grow together and you start to have this huge degree of trust. But honestly, I haven't had that kind of relationship again at work. And maybe it's for the best because I think that relationship really created a blind spot for me. Overall, I do wish I had undergone code reviews on a more regular basis. And in future projects, that's what I plan to do. Although I'm doing different type of work today. And since I put that in practice with that particular team, it got a lot better. It is hard to explain that trust. And it was understandable that at that time I got caught flat with this. At the same time, this lesson taught me to quote from Nixon, of all people, which is trust, but verify. I don't want to get into a place where I don't trust people at all, but I will always verify that they're going to do what they say they were going to do. There's another tough one behind us. And dear listeners, we've done it again. We've gone through 10 of the dozen. And... Next episode, I'm going to talk about the status of women in the workplace. And it's in some workplaces because I find that all workplaces or many different workplaces are in different places when it comes to the status of women. And that'll be part of the discussion. Until then, I hope you're well. And a final word if you feel like nobody cares about you right now, it's not true. You matter, and if there's people around you that are saying that you don't, they're the ones that are wrong, not you. No matter what, no matter who you are, no matter what you're struggling with, you deserve to be treated with caring and respect. If you wanna learn more about this project, please follow me on Facebook at Gravity Hub Team or on Twitter at Stefania Forbes. You can also email me at stefania at gravityhub.ca. Lots of love.